Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 59, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And this is a full one-hour episode of the Retro Hour. Yeah, um, you did <laughs> upload a two-minute episode onto uh, YouTube, wasn't it? For those that don't know, I mean, if you listen on iTunes or SoundCloud, you might not know about this, but every week we do actually put just the audio of the show onto YouTube yeah. to make it easy for people that, you know, followers on YouTube and that kind of thing and don't want to go to podcast clients. So last week, um, bit of a rush on Friday, went back home for a boys weekend with my dad, my uncle, my brother. So I left my Mac, rendering the uh, the video, set it to auto-upload for my movie afterwards, thought, right, job done, got in the car, get to about Sheffield on the M1, all of a sudden my phone's like, ding, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I'm like, what is going on here? And then I kind of a little glance, you know, when I got to like a stop in the traffic and it said like, shortest episode of the retro hour ever. Yeah, guru meditation. <laughs> yeah, timer devices, guru meditation was another one. So I've no idea what happened. <laughs> I think Google's to blame for that one. Yeah, but, um... or Apple. So or uh, Apple, yeah. whoever it was, we did have a two-minute episode of the Retro Hour <laughs> last week. So I finally got it fixed on Sunday night when I got back, but apologies. I'll make sure this week's show is of full duration because you will not want to miss a minute of this week's show when you hear who our special guest is. Now, our special guest is just simply amazing this week. We've got Scott Adams, and he is pretty much the father of adventure games the father of computer games really because he did the first adventure game the first games company and the first games packaging ever that's nuts to think that someone had to kind of invent boxes for games but yeah, he did. yeah no people were just chucking floppies about yeah. the first, don't put your you fingerprints know. on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and obviously Adventureland, legendary game massive game you know i go to the national video game arcade here and in a glass shelf they have a signed copy of uh Adventureland, you know, at the top. So yeah. it's a highly esteemed guest this week. Absolutely. And it's not very often that you can say, you know, you, you have the pleasure to talk to someone who did literally change the world, but we have yeah. this week. And he's got a bit of a squeaky chair at the beginning, but um, <laughs> we ask him and he goes, oh, sorry, I'll stop squeaking. <laughs> so so uh, be aware that the squeaking does stop. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought he's got a giant mouse in the background or something, yeah. I was thinking. So looking forward to this one, though, if you love adventure games or you're just interested in, you know, where video games came from, you know, this guy was there from day one. Uh, Scott Adams is going to be on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Now, I know February is the shortest month of the year, but actually it felt like last month was really long. It feels like ages ago that we did this adventure to give away uh, a signed copy of Doom the Collector's Edition and uh, the book as well, Masters of Doom, John Romero. Well, I wanted it to last longer so I could finish the book. (laughs) um, I'm going to get it off Amazon or something. Well, the reason we did this competition is because, obviously, you met John Romero. We had an interview with him about a month ago on the show. And we ran this competition to give away a signed copy of the uh, Doom Collector's Edition and also Masters of Doom, which is a story about him and John Carmack. It's, you know, they are like the Lennon and McCartney of video games. Oh, really, yeah, and this book is really cool. There's some amazing adventures in there. Mega jealous. Now, we set you a little question on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that was, what was the PC platformer developed by John Romero and the id Software team Released for MS DOS in 1990, and it was Commander Keen. Now I've checked. I don't think we didn't get any wrong answers. No, this one. No, bubble bubble. We got a few <laughs> wrong. I don't know why, but uh, Commander Keen. They seem to be really. I think that anyone that wants a signed copy of this book or the game will probably know that yeah. one, wouldn't they? So it was, of course, Commander Keen, and that selected at random from all the entries. Congratulations to Carl Burain. We'll be getting a copy of uh, Ultimate Doom and uh, also the book as well. Woohoo! Congratulations, Carl! Yeah. Now, also, we want to say a massive thank you to the people who managed to keep this show going and help us continue the Retro Hour and bring you all these amazing guests every week. And that is the people who make the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, our very generous donators. Now, Ravi, you're going to pronounce the first one wrong. I know you are. Yeah. Give it a go. Okay. Uh, Lawrence de Brugin? Yeah. Hopefully we said your name right. You know you are, if not. Yeah. But thank you for your donation. Thank you so much. Uh, Michael Stoofs. Paul Edwards. And Edward Regan, who've all made really, really generous donations to the show. And, of course, if you'd like to make a donation, there is a little PayPal link. You know, it doesn't have to be much. Every penny towards the show counts. Helps us pay for server costs and everything like that that we need to do. All you've got to do is head to theretrohour.com, click on that donation button, and that will give you a mention in a future episode, and you'll make the Hall of Fame. Woohoo! Now, before we get into our interview with Scott Adams, some interesting stories have been doing the rounds this week. Now, were you a fan of Alone in the Dark back in the day? Alone in the Dark? No, I always saw it, but I never, never knew much about that game. You know, Resident Evil, I'd say, took a lot of inspiration from it. 
Um, the first horror game I really remember playing that frightened me, there's one bit at the beginning. You either play like a male or a female character. Yeah. And there's one bit at the beginning of the game where you're in this room and you go near a window and a monster like jumps through the glass and starts like jumping around in front of you. And I remember like, I screamed out loud when I saw that as a little kid. The first game that really scared me was Dark Seed. Yeah. And that was by, uh, you know, the, the art was by H.G. Geiger who did um, stuff for Alien and... Very dark, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> really scary. But, you know, there is actually, the reason we're mentioning this is um, Frederick Raynell, um, who's actually the developer of Alone in the Dark back in the early 90s, is now releasing a brand new horror game. Oh, wow. So this is going to be called Too Dark. And it comes out only a couple of weeks, actually, March the 17th, this gets released. And it's going to be released on PS4, Xbox One, and Steam as well. And, you know, really, this guy is a, the pioneer of survival horror games. Um, you know, Alone in the Dark, you know, like I said, Resident Evil was inspired by it. You know, you go all the way back. And I remember I've got that on the 3DO and I remember seeing it on Bad Influence on the PC when it first came out. And uh, apparently this is all about you make your way through um, tight corridors and dimly lit rooms. And there's a psychopath who uh, vows to kidnap children. So you basically <laughs> got to track this guy down. And there is a trailer that's been uploaded. The graphic style of it reminds me of like Tim Burton or something. Okay. Looks pretty dark, so I just didn't get in a new horror game from the guy that you know essentially started the genre. Yeah, and that, and I guess this game as well, uh, Alone in the Dark, was there before all these kind of mass things happened. So it was it was a bit like a trendsetter. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe this style will appeal to a lot of people that uh, kind of played the old games, and you know. Well, I think you know a lot of things that Alone in the Dark got right. I mean, it really, it was the first game I remember that having kind of you get it in films all the time now, like jump scares. You know, like ah, obviously okay, it was yeah. the first game that gave you that. Because Silent Hill, I used to get that afterwards, but yeah. I guess that was after. I think Alone in the Dark was like what ninety two, ninety three, oh, so wow. very early. Wow, um, just when three D had like kind of dawned. Uh, but yeah, it's even got like, the creaky floorboards and stuff like that. And there's a lot of areas of the game where you walk around the corner. And just like there'll be like a zombie or a monster like that, or, or, or burst out of a cupboard or something like that. So, you know, I've been playing Alone in the Dark again, actually, recently on the 3DO. Hasn't aged quite as well as some of the games. It's got those tank controls. Yeah. Which, like, I don't know how we used them back in the day. Early, it's weird. With early 3D, it was like you just get used to these really awful controls, and it was always kind of they hadn't like standardized it yet, had they? So, yeah, there's like some monster like clawing you in the back of the head, and you're like, Well, I'm trying to get you, I just can't turn around. (laughs) So, I'm sure his control mechanisms improved in like you know 20, 30 years, whatever it's been. Now, this is some interesting Dreamcast news. Um, a bit of a rare collectible, signed by someone who was in a rather famous rock band back in the late 90s. Uh, yeah, you can be rolling, rolling with this one. <laughs> oh, nice pun. <laughs> yeah. It's a Dreamcast signed by Fred Durst, the um, immature man-child, as I like to call him. <laughs> I used to live with a guy at uni, like Chris's name was, and he was obsessed with Limp Bizkit. Like, all he'd hear coming out of his room. There was one period in the 90s where, I swear, like 90% of my friends had that red trucker cap yeah yeah <laughs> and they were all trying to be fred durst <laughs> but apparently he had a big connection with the dreamcast which is crazy which is weird because i keep seeing articles um i saw one on reddit today you found this one on cinema blend yeah signed dreamcast with fred durst signature on and you said oh you know it's really cool at sign that's all i saw one as well and it was on ebay and there's one selling at the moment on ebay for ten thousand dollars so there's like a thread on reddit <laughs> going through and I kind of searched it, and there's been, like, you know, other Dreamcasts with his signature on found over, like, last year, year before, year before. So I kind of thought, you know, there can't be, there's got to be something, like, behind the scenes here. Yeah, there must have been some connection. They weren't just like, I've got a random console, let's get a random rock star to sign <laughs> it, you know. So it seems that he did have some connection to Sega because someone found an image on Reddit of him signing about 400 Dreamcasts. So there is quite a lot of them out there, I think. Wow. These signed Fred Durst Dreamcasts. Yeah, it's, it's like, but it just sounded like, you know, a, a marker pen. It's not like, you know, special limited Sega unit or anything like that. But also, um, someone found a Sega net advert with a little quote from Fred Durst in there saying, if you get whooped, it was probably me playing you, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's such a big fan of the Dreamcast. So I imagine he must have been like an ambassador for the Dreamcast in some way. They must have given him like a few quid to well, kind of be, you know, a pioneer of the concept. Well, they're saying this eBay user, Hollywood Storage One, has six listings of Dreamcast signed by Fred Durst, and they're unused as well, so they were signed and then just put back in the box. <laughs> How can you prove Fred Durst actually signed all these? I don't know, because I've, I've seen people putting up things saying this is Fred Durst's signature and this isn't 
relevant to this and you know so now people are questioning the signatures and stuff it's just a black marker pen like with yeah, Fred yeah, Durser totally, and Ali, yeah. <laughs> so yeah good luck if you're going to pay ten thousand dollars for one of those i'm sure it is legit yeah now last year uh we went over to play in manchester mm. that was awesome and uh we actually had rob hewson on the show a couple of weeks later we met him there didn't we had a, had a stand there he's um andrew hewson's son yeah Houston Consultants, obviously, have come back in recent years. Legendary he, company as oh, well. Absolutely. Massive. Yeah, I mean, you know, dating back to like, the C64 and the Spectrum. And he was showing off this game, wasn't he, at play last year? Yeah, it was um, quite like Iridium. Yeah. But it was really fast. And the kind of amount of objects that you had on the screen, obviously, you couldn't do that on Iridium. But uh, it looks amazing on modern hardware. But it's... You know, 8-bit style still, and all kind of pixelated and blocky. It's really nice. But it did have certain bits in the game from, you know, we, we had a quick play of it. And it, like you said, it did look a bit like, you know, a Spectrum or Commodore 64 game. And then something happened where you got these like, really cool effects, and you're like, oh, then it looked like a modern game. Yeah. So, which I think is really cool. Now, they did try to put this out on Kickstarter. Yeah, it's called Hyper Sentinel. Yeah, Hyper Sentinel is a game, yeah. So, it got a Kickstarter at the back end of last year, but unfortunately, it didn't meet its target back then, did it? And there have been lots of people that have been really disappointed who mm. wanted to play this game. And, you know, I, I was kind of one of those. I, you know, I, I thought, I want to play this game, but now I may never get the chance to do it. And originally they wanted a £35,000 goal. That was a the goal they were reaching for on Kickstarter. Ended up raising about 12000 last year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was less than half of what they needed. But now they've actually put it back on Kickstarter with a much lower goal this time. So it's only 15000 they need to raise. So it's, it's probably more achievable. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, at the moment, um, you know, this article here on uh, Retro Gamer magazine, at the time this article came out this week, they're already 12,553 towards it anyway, so they only wow. need like another yeah. couple of grand. So if you're a fan of these shooting mobs, definitely worth getting behind this. Well, I was talking to Rob and he was saying that the, the programmer behind this is absolutely fabulous. He's like really, really good. And it's one guy All right. that's doing this. That's how it used to be back in the day though, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So. And, uh, you know, this it's, it's for modern hardware. It's going to come out on, like, Steam, PS4, Xbox One, uh, Android even, and uh, iOS as well. So it's going to be on mobiles too. Wow. And if you haven't seen this, though, it's got those kind of, you know, those early 80s kind of neon-inspired graphics, like I said, with some really cool effects thrown in as well. So if you enjoyed, I mean, you know, Iridium was one of their games, wasn't it? Mm. Um, Houston, I mean, it was, it was, it's kind of multi-layered, this one as well. You know, you're looking down on Iridium and there's a couple of layers. But on this one, there's some underneath, so you can fly lower and get higher, and it's just the whole dimensions of it seem totally changed. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's got a different name, but essentially, I mean, it is a new Iridium game, yeah. really, isn't it? So <laughs> it. if you love that back in the day, I mean, definitely pledge for this, because, you know, second time it's been on there now, it's nearly at its goal. I want to play this game, and if it, it doesn't make it this time, it probably will never see the light of day. Yeah. So if you want to back that, please do. We'll stick that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, you found some pretty cool arcade news. Oh, yeah, this is really cool. So do you remember Primal Rage? That fighting game with, like, dinosaurs and stuff and yeah, yeah, but, ancient um, cavemen. And... It, was, it was really early, and it was stop motion, Yeah, which was, you know, a really high-end technology then. So everyone was majorly impressed. And this was in the arcades in the early 90s. So every system got a copy of Primal Rage, I'm sure. Even the Amiga did, didn't it? Yeah, and know. it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, you know, they, they lowered down the scale of graphics constantly. Well, did you know there was a Primal Rage 2? Oh, interesting. Yeah, so this basically was developed. Uh, they've spoke to Chris Tang. This is on RetroCollector.com, yeah. who was one of the lead developers. So he basically said... Atari were developing it, and Midway bought their whole division of kind of arcade machines. Okay, and obviously so, they were doing Mortal Kombat around that time, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, so, so it just kind of got swallowed up and disappeared. But um, someone dumped the ROM online. Now, there was only a bit of footage available, mm-hmm. so what they've had to do is they've had to make their own main build just to emulate the cabinet. Wow, okay. So it's called <laughs> Main for Rage 2, and it is just a whole piece of software built to run Rage 2. But it's all running now. Because that was a big game, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, massive. And if you look at this, the gameplay footage of it, it looks fantastic. It looks really up to the level of Mortal Kombat. And, you know, I think this would have been a massive hit if it had come out. What is quite interesting in this story as well is that the game was actually started on um, Jaguar hardware. 
What a title that would have been to launch yeah. a Jaguar on as well. So Jaguar did have some fighting games, but they were awful, like Katsumi Ninja and Katsumi stuff. Katsumi Ninja was all right. <laughs> <laughs> have you it, played it? <laughs> yeah, it got a bit of a Games Master coverage. But I think this, because of the name as well, you know, Primal Rage, people mm. would have really got onto that. Well, you know, I remember when the first one came out, it was Dinosaurs, and obviously Jurassic Park came out around that time as well. So Dinosaurs were like the in thing, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But I can see why. I mean, you know, I imagine Midway canned it because... They were working on Mortal Kombat, and they saw that as a competitor to it, I guess. But it was that kind of idea, wasn't it, that you got a primal rage. So when your character turned into a rage, you became a primal creature and then started attacking stuff. So. Yeah, it was clever. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, more than 25 years on, you can now play it. Yeah, finally. <laughs> so uh, we'll shove that in our show notes this week as well. Now, before we get into this week's special guest, um, there's been a lot of documentaries come out recently about the Amiga and, uh, you know... It's great, also... isn't it? We oh. only had one 70s one before, and now there's about three or four. It's crazy. We've been spoiled recently. Yeah. Um, but this one, uh, there is actually a new Commodore and Amiga documentary that's just gone up onto Kickstarter... And uh, at the time of recording this, it's currently got £6,666 pledged towards it. (laughs) So if you'd like to back Satan on his Kickstarter, actually, that's just a coincidence. Uh, But this, it looks really good, actually. We've been chatting to the guy who's behind this, Stephen, his name is. And he is, you know, we've been talking on email. Um, He is a lifelong Commodore fan. Started with the VIC-20, moved up to the Amiga, threw a lot of Commodore 8 bits and all that. And he's kind of, you know, you chat to a lot of people that use these classic systems and they always talk about how it kind of changed their life. And what they do today is influenced by what, you know, those formative years on those systems. So it really is, you know, it's a labour of love, this documentary. But also, he's done some documentaries before, because I was looking on his IMDb, Mm. the director that he's got, and he's really quite good, some of the stuff that they've done. And he wants to tell the whole story of it. So he wants to tell the story, you know, a lot of people have done, like the Commodore Wars was very focused on Commodore. Yeah, all the 8-bit years really. You know, know, uh, Bedrooms to Billions was focused on the Amiga, he wants to do Commodore and the Amiga, yep. the full tale, all the machines, you know. Well, this is going to be a two-hour documentary film, bringing it out on Blu-ray. Um, I imagine there's going to be a digital, yeah, digital download as well here on the Kickstarter. Two hours long, taking you through Commodore's evolution from the 70s to the 90s. So it's, you know, starts from the PET. It's our computers, really, you know, the mm. PET, VIC-20, C64, Plus 4, even up to the uh, ultra-rare Commodore 65. That was a really weird period as well, because lots of people said, why... A Commodore trying to develop the city. When was it? It was in the... 1990, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 1990, and they were still developing it, the... Even the people that were working on it were like, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember it, though? Because it looked... I mean, it looked a bit like an Amiga 1200, didn't it? Yeah, I saw one on eBay uh, a while ago. It didn't want to sell for, like, a ridiculous amount. It was like 10,000 yeah. or something stupid. It, yeah, I think it was, wasn't even fully working or something no. either, was it? If you haven't seen that, if you haven't seen the Commodore 65... Have a quick Google of it. It's like, it's got like a disk drive built in, but it's kind of on the front of it, isn't it? With a weird eject yeah, button and things. It's very, very strange. I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> but the but work, this film will tell us. You well, know? well, apparently there were quite a lot of them made. And I think, you know, when Commodore Germany went bankrupt, yeah. they had something like 200 prototypes that they released in the wild and people bought them. So there are like a few hundred of them out there. Uh-huh. Um, they go for a fair bit of money. And I imagine, you know, they're quite buggy. You can actually emulate the Commodore 65 in Vice, you know, the um, yeah, yeah. Commodore emulator. But it's really cool that he's covered even, like, you know, kind of obscure bits of the Commodore story like that. That's quite promising, I think. Yeah, and it, and it will just show how this massive company, worldwide name, the third or the fourth computer system company in the world basically killed itself. Yeah. <laughs> that will be uh, the tale, and it's going to be very interesting. Went All the ups and downs. A billion-dollar company to bankrupt in like two years or something, yeah, didn't they? pretty much. But this also comes with a 50-page book as well. Um, oh, wow. Which, That's you know, good. shows lots of pictures of the systems and all that as well. And he's already got quite a few um, interesting names on board that are going to be doing, uh, you know, contributions to this as well. You can see a lot of them on his Kickstarter, but, you know, um, I think we even might be in the film as well at some oh, point. God, so uh, yeah. we, we've been chatting to him, so... This, you know, it, it looks like it's going to be, for any Commodore fan, um, a movie that will tell the story from start to finish. And and I'm sure as, as, as he continues to get support for his Kickstarter, it will grow in momentum and it will grow with the amount of people getting involved and, you know, some of the old names of Commodore will come in and stuff. I think it's going to be a big one, this. Absolutely. Well, uh, it's currently got, at the time of recording, this just over 50 days to go. Um, so if you want to pledge that, you know, you've just got just over a month to do it. I, I'm hoping it'll make its target. You know, like I said, there are nearly 7,000 so far. 17,500 they're trying to raise. So it's about 10, 10 grand left to go in like yep. over a month. Definitely doable. And uh, if you watch a trailer of it as well, I mean, the production quality looks amazing on it as well. So highly recommend you check it out. We'll ship that Kickstarter in our show notes at theretrohour.com. 
Right, well, thank you for checking out episode number 59, the big 6-0 next week. Oh, my God. <laughs> 50 only feels like about two weeks ago. Have we got a guest yet? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll have someone big next week. Get yeah, wa- we'll, we'll just grab rubbing. someone from the street. There's <laughs> <laughs> a big 60, come in. Our 60th episode next week, definitely one to look forward to. And it will be released, of course, next Friday, available from all of your favourite platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, the full show, yeah, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see you again next Friday. And now, for the next 40 minutes or so, the father of adventure games. Scott Adams. See you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to get on this week's special guest, the amazing Scott Adams. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. I'm I'm really happy to join you guys and uh, excited to, to be here. Well, let's start right from the beginning. I mean, when when was the first time you ever experienced a computer? Oh, uh, that would probably be when I was in grade school in the uh, very late 50s or early 60s. I remember being in elementary school around third or fourth grade, so I'm guessing around nine or ten years old. They took the class on a field trip to the computer science department, uh, I believe it was University of Miami. And I I remember it stuck in my memory because we got to go down there and we got to see the computers and they were giant and they were behind all these glass walls and we can see people walking around inside and doing stuff. Uh, They came out, uh, talked to us, gave a little demonstration. I remember them showing us... uh, a hard drive of that era. So I'm guessing this is uh, was an IBM system, um, and it was a, a big stack of platters that all all were tied together somehow. Um, and I'm pretty sure I saw tape drives running. These were the big stand-up. Probably they were probably seven-track tape drives. And as a kid, I remember thinking, "Wow, that looks so cool in there." I want to get inside there someday. So <laughs> that was the beginning. It must have looked like something out of science fiction back then, did it? Absolutely. It was It was incredibly un, un, unreal. Um, I had probably seen science fiction computers, but I can't even remember at this point. Uh, keep in mind, there, weren't, there wouldn't have been much out in, yet. Like I said, we're talking uh, late 50s, early 60s. Probably 61, 62. So the the big science fiction computer movies were still on the horizon. Were you um, heavily into maths then? I, yeah, I did enjoy math. Did come easy to me. I remember learning binary when I was binary arithmetic when I was in sixth grade. Wow. Um, and this once again is back back in uh, the uh, the dark era, you might say. Uh, uh, we didn't have personal computers back then. People didn't have access. So it was like, why do you want to learn binary? And I thought, I just said, well, because it just seems cool. That's what computers use. So when did you first get your hands on a computer then and get to use one? Okay, fast forward, let me think. In high school, I was in my uh, junior year, so 11th grade, the state of Florida here in the United States decided they were going to do a trial, an experiment, and they put a comp- they picked a high school and put a computer terminal in its math science resource center, and it just happened to be the school I was going to, which was North Miami uh, Beach Senior High School, and they put a terminal in there. It was connected to, uh, once again, University of Miami, uh, to an IBM 360, and it was running uh, a, a language called APL, uh, which stands for A Programming Language. It's, a, it's an early computer language that has uh, a lot of Greek characters in it. It's really designed for mathematicians to, to be able to, to program in. If you look at it, it truly looks Greek. And to hook up to this computer, they put in a Selectric typewriter there at the resource center, a telephone line, and a modem. And we would dial up the computer center, get the uh, modem at the other end, and then connect up. And we were probably running at a a whopping 110 baud or maybe 300 baud at that time. Uh, Really slow. But all it had to do was accept the keys from the typewriter and accept the uh, input coming back, and it would type on the Selectric. Our printout, we had a big box of computer paper hooked up, so we'd have a printout of what was going on. 
And the uh, Selectric was used because the ball that contains all the, the alphabet and numbers and symbols on it was replaced with an APL 360 programming ball. So it had all the Greek characters that you needed for this language. And so that was my first time seeing a computer. I asked, what do I have to do to use this? And they said, anybody can use it in the school. You just sign up there on the sheet. So I signed up. Started playing with it. Couldn't figure it out. Um, I had a friend at that point who was going to University of Miami. And they said they could get me a programming manual from the bookstore down there. Would I like to buy one? And I remember thinking, yes. And I think it cost me, it was like $10. It was a lot of money back then. But I had them buy me one. I got the manual. I read it cover to cover and said, this is fantastic. And I decided I'll start writing some programs. And that was the beginning. So what kind of stuff were you doing then? What, what kind of stuff were you writing on this machine? Um, my first program was probably something on the order of Hello World type thing. I remember that. Uh, but my first serious program that I wanted to write was I remember going to the World's Fair uh, in Flushing, New York. Um, and this was in the uh, mid-60s. And I remember seeing an IBM exhibit there where they had a computer play tic-tac-toe against you. And you could go up and play tic-tac-toe against the computer. And there was a big sign there saying, uh, uh, computer wins, tie game. But there was no sign that says, you lose. And I said, well, why is there no sign that says, you lose? And they said, well, computer can't lose at tic-tac-toe. This is before I ever realized that Right. If you play it properly, you should never lose. But I, I didn't know this at the time. I thought, that's really cool. Computers are really smart. So when it, I had a chance to start writing a program. The first major program I wrote was I wanted the computer to play tic-tac-toe against a person and never lose. And so that's that's what I did. I wrote it at home. Uh, took took a lot of time. Um, and I did it very inefficiently. It was not a very good program, but it worked, and it did what I wanted to do. I got so involved with the computer that I got permission from the high school that I could go a couple of hours before the school opened, knock on the door, and the janitors would let me in. I could go use the computer for a couple hours before school started. Then after school, I got permission to stay to 8 or 9 o'clock at night, get locked into the school, and let myself out. So I, I, I was really enamored with this. What did your uh, like your professors and your teachers? What what did they think of what you were doing on the machine? Then did they understand it, or were they just kind of were letting get on with it? Um, they were, yeah, they were just watching from from the outskirts. They were happy to see that the kids were getting involved with it and were interested in it. I don't remember ever seeing any of the uh, teachers or any of the others using it themselves. Um, and they were just, and a lot of the school didn't even understand what's going on. Uh, because, once again, computers are not something common, and being able to remote into one was not something they, they really understood either, because to them, a computer was something big somewhere else, and uh, other people took care of it. So when did you finally get to own your own personal computer? Um, I, it was advertised in Radio Electronics. Right now, I don't remember the date. I'd have to pull it up myself to double-check. I remember seeing the ad. It was an advertisement... That was on in the back in the classified section. It was really tiny. But basically, they were advertising a kit computer. <clears throat> and I think it was around $800 or $750. And I remember borrowing the money. I have uh, two brothers and a sister. So I borrowed the money from all my siblings. They all chipped in. And my mom and dad chipped in a little too. So I could buy this computer. I was so excited about it uh, to have my own computer. That ask actually wasn't the first one that I worked on. I worked on an earlier one. My brother and I were going, actually all three of us, I have another brother, we were all going to college at the time, uh, and we were renting a house. Uh, my brother Richard uh, heard about a bit slice computer that was available. Where he actually went out, he bought the parts, and he designed a 16-bit computer through bit slice chips. I think there were probably four bit at a time and it took four of them. I'm not sure now. I really don't remember. I've actually got the video of what I did on my webpage. My brother, one brother made the hardware. Uh, my other brother did a TV typewriter type thing. So you could actually type in and get input into the system and get output on the screen. And then I took what they did and I wrote a game on it. 
And it's probably, as far as we can tell, the first 16-bit computer game. It was very primitive. It was uh, all character graphics flying around. And if you want to get a laugh, you can you, you can run the, the old uh, picture of it. Um, then moving forward a little, the um, Sphere computer was a kit. And when I got it, it was a – it had – I believe something on the neighborhood of uh, uh, 200 and uh, 512 maybe of of read write uh, of ROM, which was the quote operating system, and a couple of K of memory. I actually built the system as a kit, and I using wire wrap. I added memory to the system. I don't remember what I went up to, but I think it was around 16K. In any case. The first major thing I did was I wrote a computer game, and I wrote a tank war game for two players to play each other. But before I did that, this was a text-only machine, so I actually invented a video graphics card for it and uh, and built it so that you could have bitmap graphics on the screen. So with this, I then... Uh, and I, I wanted to write a tank war game. That's a tank war to me had to have proper tank controllers. So that means the left hand had to have a, a stick, right hand had to have a stick, you had to have a fire button, and the stick had to be able to go back and forward on both hands. So I actually made something out of wood and uh, wires and uh, copper tubing so that you would then drive the stick forward, it'd make a contact, you pull it towards you, it'd make a contact, one for each hand, so you could then drive your tank. And then a fire button that would shoot, and built a, a bit-mapped single screen with um, uh, obstacles on it. Keep in mind, you're, this is, you're looking down from the top, very primitive graphics, but you would then drive around and play tank war. Well, at this point, Sear, uh, the company that came out, advertised uh, that they wanted people to compete. What do I use my sphere for? What What is it I've done? And to write in and show them what you've done with your sphere. So I put together a whole presentation. I even took a video of the gameplay of the screen and mailed the whole thing in. And lo and behold, I won first prize wow. for what <laughs> do I do with the, the sphere. And then I got a nice letter back from the guy who founded the company saying, that they had a special place in their heart for me because I was also their very first order back when they started the company, which was interesting. Well, the Sphere was quite an interesting machine. I mean, it's generally, I mean, you don't hear a lot about it anymore. You hear about the Altair and stuff like that, but really the Sphere yep. was probably the first personal computer, I guess, wasn't it? It and the Mitz Altair were neck and neck, and I yeah. don't know where they fit on the time frame, certainly within a, a few months of each other. Um, the nice thing that the Sphere had, it was probably the very first Definitely the first personal computer that had a screening keyboard because the Mitz Altair was just a, a plain box with bit switches on the front. You mentioned an interesting point there that when you went for that competition, you know, they were asking what you did with your Sphere computer because I guess that was probably quite a big question in the early days of microcomputers. I remember, you know, this famous quote from Mike HP, you know, what would people ever want a computer at home for? I mean, <laughs> very true. Very true. And here are their first contest the winner is a game. <laughs> So that, that that sort of shed a light on what computers can do. Did you know that when the microcomputer started, did you know what a revolution it was going to be? Did you have any kind of foresight for that? No, no, just the opposite. Okay. I Because rem I, I can remember it. I, this is one, one vivid memory. I was in college. We had uh, uh, two computer systems there. We had a uh, uh, Xerox Sigma uh, 7 downstairs in the computer lab that was used for all the finances and everything for the school. Then we had a DDP um, 100 uh, upstairs that was donated from the Cape that was for student use. By the way, I ended up using both computers and got some interesting stories behind that. But I remember one of the professors came in and said, I've got a personal computer here. And he held it. It was the built on the Intel 40-04 chip. And it basically couldn't do much of anything because it was an 8-bit computer. You had literally 256 bytes of addressable memory. It was more a proof of concept. Um, the first real one to come out would be the uh, 8008. That Then they went to allowing uh, the, the, the address space to grow to be 16 bits, and that made, made a difference. But anyway, when he brought that in, I was thinking, oh, that's useless. I mean, 
256 bytes of memory? Who needs anything like that? This this is going nowhere. <laughs> so I I didn't see the vision at the time. So how did you end up kind of getting introduced and playing on Colossal Caves? Uh, I was working at Stromberg Carlson as a programmer at that point, and the IT department had gotten a copy of the game. I was a programmer, but I wasn't in IT, so we had remote access into the mainframe uh, to do the work for Stromberg Carlson. They were a telephone company, Um, and I heard about this game. Somebody said, you know, there's a really neat game that you can play. And so I checked, and they said, yeah, it's on the mainframe. We've all played it. It's a lot of fun. I said, I want to play it. Well, I'm sorry. This is just for the IT guys. I said, oh, come on. Well, we can't let you do it during work. I said, what if I come in early and stay late after normal business hours? Can I log in and do it? I said, okay, we'll let you. So I got to play Adventure. Uh, it took me a week, and um, I was just blown away. It was a tremendous amount of fun. I really enjoyed it. At this point in my life, I had gotten a TRS-80 Model 1 with 16K with uh, Microsoft BASIC in it. I was learning BASIC at the time, um, and I found that BASIC had something in it that I'd never seen before, and that is the intrinsic ability to handle strings, where you could assign a string of uh, human alphabetical characters to a variable and be able to properly handle it and I thought that was enormously interesting and I had been thinking I'd really like to write a game because I'd written some very primitive games on it but I wanted to write a game that did something with strings and I couldn't think of what I wanted to do after I played Colossal Caves I knew what I wanted to do I wanted to write a game like that adventure and I even told some of the folks there at work uh, colleagues that I was going to do that and they laughed at me that's you're crazy. Well, this is running on the mainframe computer, your little toy computer. It's totally impossible for you to do anything like that. You don't have enough memory. You don't have enough processing power. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, that's not going to stop me. <laughs> so I invented my own system to do it. I literally uh, invented a, a language for writing adventures in. I wrote a database a database compiler that would read my language, compile the game down, and then I wrote an interpreter that would read the language. The game was not hardwired. It was the database you loaded that played the game. So, And as I developed the game, I changed my language to put in features that I needed. And that was my original game was Adventureland. And that was the first text adventure for microcomputers? As far as I know, I believe so. There is something I read somewhere about an H8 computer that may have had a copy of Colossal Caves on it, but I don't think that's possible considering the the time frame at the time. So as far as I know, then yes, I'm pretty sure this was the first adventure game for for a a microcomputer or an adventure-like game in any case, interactive fiction. Um, how much did people react to it when you kind of uh, tested it and even just sat them down and said, right, play this? I, they had a lot of fun. And i that's one way I improved my game was letting people play it. And I'd see what they're doing and I'd fix things and I, I'd tweak it. Um, I belonged to a computer club at the time, so I had other friends that were interested in this. And then when I finally got it done... Uh, where you could play all the way through, and I couldn't change it anymore because I ran out of memory. Keep in mind, this was all written in BASIC. Uh, I figured, oh, well, I've been trying to buy games to sell in the back of, I think it was Softside Magazine. Let me see if I can sell them. So I started selling individual tapes, and I also sold them at a computer club. I would, I would sell it to people at the club that wanted to uh, play a computer game. And that was the beginning of my Adventure International company, as it were. Um, At the point, I was a real novice when it came to business. I remember getting an order from, a, I believe it was Manuel Garcia, I think it was his name, in Chicago. He ran a, a Radio Shack franchise there. And he called up and he wanted to order 50 games. And that was like, wow. So I, I spent like a week making the games on cassette tape because uh, literally I had to just save and copy, save and copy. This would have taken quite a while. Shipped them up the blank tapes and get a call back saying, okay, where's the packaging? <laughs> I said, 
packaging. I've been selling these without packaging. He says, okay, well, I'm going to keep these 50. I'm going to pay you for it. But you got to come up with packaging. It was just Ziploc bags before that, I imagine, then, yeah? Well, all it was was a cassette. Yeah. I had a cassette with <laughs> a clip, a and that was it. Not even a label <laughs> on it. That, that was it. It was just the game on a cassette, because that's what I've been selling through the mail and selling to people at the, the uh, computer club, and it was fine. So the next step was figuring out packaging. And at the time, I had an uh, infant daughter, and she was on formula. Uh, I, one day, I remember I was in the line at the grocery store to buy uh, the formula liner for the bottles. Um, they were plastic bags. And it was like, oh, I wonder if a tape would fit in one of these bags. And sure enough, the tape just fit with a little bit at the end. I thought I could just staple a bifold business card at the top, and there's my packaging. Drill a hole in the card, and it, it'll hang on a pegboard. And so the packaging was born. <laughs> That's a pretty ingenious solution, though. It was. It was. Because I had tried to find a plastic bag uh, source, and all of them wanted me to buy, like, oh, yeah, we can sell you plastic bags. You need to buy a 1,000 bags. Okay, well, how much for 50? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We don't deal in those quantities, you know. Okay. So I found a source, and so early – Early on, that's I was raiding the grocery stores for plastic bags. Um, when you decided to advertise in the magazine, how demanding did it get? Kind of sending I, out copies, and there were certainly a lot coming in, and I was go I ended up having to get a post office box. I remember, and at that time, we were just moving to another house. Because I remember in the other house, I actually built in a small 10 by 10 room, and this was going to be for business. This is going to be the for the making the games and sending them out. That was my, okay, I'll, I'll have a little small office here, which uh, later we rapidly outgrew and, and moved on to much bigger and better quarters. Uh, it, it was a definitely a growth market because people who played it definitely enjoyed it. And the people who were buying the computers at that time were the type of people who would enjoy this type of game uh, it's because adventures when you get down and think about it are basically critical thinking games uh, where you're trying to figure out solutions and be creative and a lot of people who were buying the early computers that was their niche uh, they wanted to figure out problems and be creative so it, it worked well it was a perfect game for the, the perfect audience well your company was adventure international when did you become like you know that was your sole focus when did you start to work in it full time i don't remember the date it would have been sometime in 79 or 80 i'm not 100 percent sure i do remember doing it part-time where we had finally moved out of uh, the house and i rented a storefront that was available and we thought well while we're doing this we could have the Adventure National in the back of the store, and the front, we could have a computer store. There's no computer stores around here. We had heard about, read about computer stores out in California and other places. There was nothing in the Orlando area, so I started, started a computer store, and it took off like crazy. Uh, I remember people coming in to buy things before we were even open. They just, okay, yeah, we need some floppy disks. And back then, a box of floppy disks was $50. And it was like, wow. This is great because I'm getting these at you know $40 wholesale. I'm making $10, and this this is profitable. So Adventure International then was in the back of the store there. And then later it got so big we had to split off. The store became separate. The store grew. It took over a few more spaces in that strip mall, and we moved off to another strip mall that was office space. And then down the road we, we built a geodesic dome, which – was interesting too well when you ran the shop i mean did you kind of notice like did the microcomputer boom happen quickly did it like over a few months did it kind of <laughs> rise pretty fast it did mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of pent-up demand and people were interested um and it was self-fueling so both the demands for the the games and and also just general computer stuff was in demand and back then um the computer i knew the best was the trs80 uh, and so that's what we were selling at the store, which is kind of hard to do since we weren't a Radio Shack. Uh, so what I ended up doing was finding Radio Shacks that couldn't move product very well. And since I knew how to move computers, I was buying it to them. They'd mark it up a little bit and then they'd reship it to me. So I was not an authorized franchise, but I was still selling Radio Shacks. And then Atari came out with the Atari 400 and 800 and we sold those and started specializing more so in those and sold a lot of those uh, until 
Toys R Us got involved. I remember Atari suddenly realized this thing is taking off, and they started mass selling in uh, Toys R Us. Finally, computers were mass marketed the first time in Toys R Us, and that that definitely was hurting the computer store because now we couldn't sell uh, computers as well. But we were still selling accessories and software. Uh, also, packages. I started packaging things together where you could buy an Atari from us, and you'll get $100 worth of free software. Well, $100 of free software was Adventure International software. So I got that kind of cheap, so I was able to put it into the package and make it attractive. Did you have any uh, dealings with like Apple or Commodore or other companies around that time? I never did anything with Apple, but I did quite a bit with Commodore. I got approached by Commodore Computer, and this was uh, a few years down. I had five games out at that time, I think it was. Uh, five of the adventure games, plus other games are selling for other authors. Uh, Commodore Computer uh, called and said they're coming out. I remember the pet was out, and I had seen the pet, but it wasn't doing that great. They called and they said they were coming out with a new computer, and they were looking for launch titles, and they would like wanted to see if uh, they could license any of my games. And what they wanted to do was put them in cartridge because the pet had a very limited memory space. I think it was like 5K. And I said, there's no way the game will run in 5K. And they said, well, we've got a cartridge. Can you put the game on the cartridge? Is 5K enough for the game to operate if it's running on the cartridge? And I said, yes, it was. So they sent a programmer down uh, to work with me on getting the conversion of the game to run on cartridge. We got down to the point where we had, we were so close to getting this to work and squeezed so much out of it just you know, re, uh, refactored the code so many times, but we're still like a couple of hundred bytes short. And the programmer says, you know, there's an auto loader in every cartridge that lets it, when it plugs in, get started and uh, begin running. If I take that auto loader out, that'll give us a couple hundred bytes. And sure enough, the game fit. And I said, well, but how are people going to start? the game if it doesn't auto start and he says we're going to have to tell him to type in some magic numbers so on every adventure cartridge for the vic 20 there is a uh, assist command that has some numbers after it that you have to type in and that literally would jump to the location to start the game that was a big deal well, the launch did very well the games sold tremendously and i think the sales figure were was a million and a half a uh, dollar's worth of income to Commodore uh, coming in off of the sales of that. So quite a few sold. It, it was popular. I still get fan mail from people that started out by playing those games on the Vic. And m many of them wrote how it was life-changing for them. They had never really thought about computers before. And because of playing the adventure games on the Vic 20, they went into a career that was uh, Technology and a lot of them went into computer programming, computer science, and and other areas. So that that was a good feeling to know I influenced people in a positive way. And uh, by that time, you'd had a much better packaging with uh, you know yes. covers and uh, cover art. Yes, we went through a lot of different types of packaging. Um, we also. Um, got an inquiry from a firm that was doing software in the UK that wanted to license for the UK machines. And so Adventure International UK was started. Uh, they were basically a franchise where that they would license the game and then they did all the production and all the conversions to the uh, UK systems at the time. And that reached very well in uh, the UK. I've, I've gotten a lot of fan mail from people who were affected by those games. But it also spread out over Europe. I've, I have uh, a number of fans that came as far away as Italy who were buying uh, their software from the UK. Even Adventureland came out of like, the ZX Spectrum and the Acorn BBC Micro and the Dragon 32, like systems that we only had over here in Europe. Correct. And, and they did all the uh, translations of the uh, code base to get them to run onto those systems. And also besides AI UK, I also had a Japan, uh, AI Japan too. And th that only came out on one machine and I don't remember even the name of it now, but it was gorgeous. It was an incredible color machine. And they licensed the color versions of the games 
and then they redid them into Japanese. And I absolutely had no way to prove what they were doing, <laughs> but apparently it worked. Well, uh, later on, you started to do um, well adventure stuff. So started to do a lot of kind of franchise games and licensed games. So uh, yes, Bukaru Banzai was a film at yes. the time. Yeah. Yes, it was. They and that was again where they approached us where they wanted to make Buckaroo Banzai a cult classic. And they had a big plan for what they were doing. It. One of it was they wanted uh, uh, home video games to come out on it. And so they approached us to do it. Um, it became, Buckaroo Banzai became a cult classic. Unfortunately, it took it like 10 years to do so. The initial one basically uh, crashed. And so their big plans to have a giant franchise never took off. There was just the one film, but now from what I understand, there's a tremendous following and people really enjoy, uh, the movie besides the movie tie in game. Um, I also got approached by Marvel comics, which was, was amazing. They also wanted to get into the home market and they were told by people that they contacted that they should be checking out Scott Adams Adventure Games and tie it into Marvel. So I met with them and we worked out a contract and they were tremendous people to work with. They allowed me full editorial rights and usage of their entire universe to do with whatever I wanted. Um, they were also going to put out a full comic series to go with the games that I was creating. So I worked heavily with their creative team. They put their best talents on the, the artwork in the comics. And uh, they vetted the graphics that were going into the games and just had a lot of fun with that. That, that was some really good memories. Great company. I remember meeting Stan Lee. That was a, definitely a highlight. I got him to autograph my first comic that I was in. So that that was kind of fun. Um, met Jim Shooter and uh, a number of the the other editors and, and uh, inkers and artists. So it was just great. I think uh, those must have been some of the earliest licensed games, maybe? That would be the first time Marvel got into home computers. So it was indeed... Uh, groundbreaking at that time. I remember Joe Calamari, who was vice president then, showing me his closet. He says, well, please send me copies of what you got because every time we license stuff out, we always get a few freebies and we put in these closets. And they showed me all the toys and everything they had, but there was absolutely nothing to do with video games or computer games. He says, this is going to be a first. We're going to try this and see where we go with it. That was pretty groundbreaking for a, a company of that size to, you know, appreciate how big that industry was going to get, though, and see the potential, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And I I just, I have really good memories at that time. Um, Commodore uh, was an interesting license because then they came back when they heard about the Marvel license and said, okay, well, we want to produce the games. We want to do all the Marvel games. And so we ended up with a three-way contract between myself, our Adventure International, Marvel, and Commodore. I was kind of reticent about it, but they were making big promises and making big guarantees. Uh, they brought the games out. The packaging was horrible. Their push-through was horrible. Their advertising was horrible. and The whole thing crashed. And that was one of the reasons for the demise of my company later. Part of it also went with the TI and some other crashes going on. <clears throat> but in any case, uh, Commodore ended up having to buy their way out of the contract and pay um, failure fees to both Marvel and Adventure International, which was definitely a sour feeling there. I've heard many uh, stories that Commodore were a bit of a shady company to deal with in many respects. Unfortunately, they were. Uh, you can read a lot of it in biographies and so forth. I remember once the VIC-20 started doing well, uh, they came back and said, okay, this is doing so well, we don't need to pay you so much. We want you to uh, cut your royalty fees in half. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, because because you're making too much money. Well, yes, but you're making a lot of money on this too. Yeah, we know. It was basically Tremiel who was running the company. Uh, he was He was greedy. He built the company up and he tore the company down which is kind of sad. It was it was a tremendous place. I remember going up and visiting them. I think they took over a, a Hallmark factory, if I remember correctly. Everything was housed there. And I remember seeing the 
uh, offices and the places where they were building the computers. It was all in that this one giant building. And I had gone up there a couple of times. So it was a very interesting place. And I'm very sad that they, they went out of business. Of the early computers, um, really the only two that survived were Apple and IBM. And Apple, IBM was not there in the beginning. Apple was. So Apple's really the only one that survived long term. And one of the few companies I really didn't have a one-to-one relationship with. We sold our games and did stuff for the Apple, but... I never never dealt with the company or any of the people there. Well, your games at Adventure International, I mean, they became more complex over time. I remember uh, the count in particular, that was um, used time, didn't it? So different things happened at different yes. points in the game. Um, yep. Was that quite a challenge then? Uh, each one of the series, I tried to push the envelope and do something different that had never been done before. Adventureland, it was just getting the thing to work. It was find the treasure, take them back, win the prize. Okay, that's very similar to what Adventure did. Mission, the next game, Pirate Adventure, was the concept of there's going to be a story behind this. There's a mission. You're really trying to accomplish something, but it's still get the treasure, win the prize. Um, but there, I, it was just two treasures. Once you got them, you could then show the game that you're done. By the time I got up to number five, doing the count, it was like, okay, what can I really do different in this? And like you say, yes, everything happened in a timely manner. Uh, I had started putting timers into my game language so it could understand turns that have passed and and be able to handle that. So you actually had days that passed, day and night cycles, and you had to do things in different day and night cycles. Um, The game was kind of unforgiving. You could make mistakes and you'd die and you'd have to start over. Hope you had a save game. A lot of my games were like that. Mission Impossible was probably one of the worst of the lot. That one was also time-based too, um, but in a different direction. And that was uh, in uh, number three. The uh, count was semi-interesting in that you had a an in, uh, you had an inside structure and an outside structure. And I had to come up with ways with, okay, if they're, they're outside a window hanging on and they drop something in the room, how do I explain that it hasn't fallen to the ground that's still available? So I said there's a fold in the sheet that you're hanging from that you stuff things in. So things like that. I tried to make all the games logical in that you're, you're not saying, okay, something's happening here that just doesn't make sense if there's supposed to be magic magic is fine but if i drop something it i i would expect something to happen so i tried to provide that as much as possible and once again i was still working within a 16k memory constraint it wasn't until the commodore 64 came out that uh, uh computers were getting above having only 16k well um at one point you had a 300 independent program programmers and authors and around 50 individuals which is pretty impressive for one of the first games companies yes yes it was and we were literally doing multi-million dollar in sales it did grow it grew quite a bit and then we came to the time of uh, the, the industry crash and that was that was sad the ti-99 came out being a thousand dollar computer uh did I did a cartridge, which was kind of unique. I did a game for the TI that they licensed for me, and its claim to fame was it was the first adventure game in a cartridge that also had full-color graphics. Remember the VIC-20, I had the game in there, but had no graphics. This one not only had the full-text game, but had the the graphics, and it was just out on uh, the TI. And just after they released the first set of cartridges, and it's selling... TI announces they're getting out of the business and they're, they're fire sailing everything. So $1,000 computers, they're selling off at $50 each. And this was this was a tremendous shakeout. This would have been in the mid-'80s. Uh, and so this was, this was when uh, Adventure International went down because we just didn't have the deep pockets. We were not venture capital funded. We had no outside money. Everything we had was going back into the company, and the company was just self-funded. Did you see that coming then, or was it a total nope. shock? No, it did not, which is, which is sad. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty. Looking back now, I know what I would have done differently, but that's okay. That was then. This is now. And was the Golden Voyage your last game then? Uh, no. Actually, Golden Voyage 
I didn't even write. That was uh, William DeMoss, who was a teenager who reverse engineered my uh, system and was able to figure out how to write a game in it and then submitted it. And I thought, this is a decent game. And so we went ahead and published it. And he's not the only one who ever did that. A lawyer out west uh, by the name of Alvin Files, who wrote, wrote Pyramid of Doom, did the same exact thing. He took my assembly language code, reversed engineered it out, figured out how the game was working, how the database worked, and wrote his own database. Very, very impressive. Um, so neither game was up to what I considered standard, so I worked with both Damas and uh, Alvin Files to at different times to get their games up to what I considered being decent. I would play test it. I tell them what needed to be changed and, and they would accommodate. Well, after Adventure International went bankrupt, you actually released um, the games as shareware after that. Um, it was more internetware. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they got, they got put out all over the, the internet. Uh, it wasn't shareware in, in asking people to pay for them. It was more, if you'd like to leave a tip, that would be appreciated for the, the classic games. And you had asked what my last game had been, and actually it was um, uh, in the Marvel series, uh, which was Fantastic Four. Uh, there were three games in the series. There were supposed to be 12. The first one was the Hulk, and, and uh, Marvel said, why aren't you doing Spider-Man? It's our biggest seller. And my response was, I want to get it right. And I want to, I want to do Hulk first so I can see what I'm doing. And, I'm, and when I get to Spider-Man, I want to do it even better. And I'm glad I did because when I did Hulk, it was in the old two-word parser. And uh, the graphics were okay. When I did Spider-Man, I brought it out with a, a more of a full sentence parser and also put in some limited anim animation in the game. And then after that came Fantastic Four, and it was the cutting edge in that was you were actually playing two characters at once in the game, and you had to do the right thing with each character. You could switch between the two. They'd be in different places doing different things while you're playing the adventure game. And that was the last full game I wrote for Adventure International. I was also working at that time on the X-Men, which was going to be the next, men, next one in the series. And that was probably 30 40% done at the time. I think if you look on the web, uh, you'll be able to find um, some, some of the early release code that, that uh, people have collected. One fantastic thing that I saw that you were involved with was uh, Get Lamp, the text adventure documentary by Jason Scott of textfiles.com. Yes. Yes, I enjoyed doing that. He came out... I remember when he came out and he shot it. Uh, he, I guess he almost didn't make it out here from, from what I understood, but he, he finally came out This was, and shot the, the episode. Uh, he was nice enough to send me a copy of it, and you know, to this date I still haven't watched it. I don't like watching myself. <laughs> it's a very good documentary, though. You should. It's very good. <laughs> I, I'm glad to hear that. As a, as a funny note, somebody told me, hey, do you know you're in IMDB, the Internet Movie Database? I said, what? I've never started a movie. They said, yes, you have. <laughs> because I was in that documentary. I've got a, a footnote somewhere in IMDB. Okay. <laughs> up, up, there, up there with Brad Pitt and everybody. Yeah, they confuse me all the time. <laughs> well, it must be you know, quite heartwarming that people are still interested in this work that you did so long ago. And like you said, you know, these people get in touch with you and say how it started their interest and their careers in technology. I mean... This stuff you were doing so long ago, is that important? Yes, it is. And with the birth of the internet, I started getting emails from uh, people who were fans back then. <clears throat> and over the years, a lot of these fans have turned into friends. Mm -hmm. uh, we've exchanged emails, and with the birth of internet, uh, internet, Facebook, mm -hmm. uh, even more so. I've got a lot of uh, friends on my page that were first fans, and now they're friends. And I am uh, recently retired from my uh, mundane day job uh, as of December 1st. I used to be a basically a systems programmer for uh, Esterline, uh, which is an uh, avionics uh, software firm. And I'm going back to my roots and working on a, a software project. And I've collected uh, a lot of these fans and gotten in touch with them, the ones that were that said they'd like to help me and we've got a secret group on facebook and sort of working out some things and they're 
just just amazing. I I am just amazed at where some of the people that I I touched their lives, where their lives went afterwards, <laughs> and it, it it's a good feeling because so many so many positive messages. So is this a gaming project that you're working on there? Oh yes, absolutely. Wow, okay, yeah. exciting stuff. Um, I went out last summer to uh, CGDC, Christian Game Developers Conference in Portland, Oregon. Uh, never been there before. Um, now I'm planning to go back every year. What a tremendous conference! Really, really enjoyed it. Made a lot of connections and 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 uh, a lot of new friends. So I will be going out uh, every year as long as I can to that that conference. Well, we'll keep and an eye out for your uh, new project then, because that sounds, I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in, uh, in trying that out when it eventually comes out. Mm-hmm. You'll have to I keep hope us posted. So. <laughs> and a lot of your old projects are still web playable on your website for our listeners. So if they want to have a go at some of the older games, then check it out on Scott's website. Yep. There's, there is uh, uh, msadams.com. We'll, we'll get them there. Excellent. Thank you very much for speaking to us, Scott. It was my pleasure, and I enjoyed talking to everybody. And whatever you're doing out there, have a great day. Do it with God, and happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.